Hello, welcome back to the Prevention is the New Cure podcast. We're here discussing all things NHS and health related with a political twist. Uh, I am Steve Brine, Member of Parliament for Winchester in Hampshire. I'm the Chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee in the House of Commons and I'm joined by... I'm Helen Stokes-Lampard. I'm a frontline general practitioner in the Midlands, Litchfield to be precise. I'm chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and I'm also the founding chair of an organisation called the National Academy for Social Prescribing. Great to Fantastic. be here. Fantastic. Yeah, nice to see you again. Okay, so belated happy Easter. This is, believe it or not, this is episode four of our little podcast. Um, last time, what did we, last time we did public satisfaction with the NHS, didn't we? We talked about that. Yes, the, wasn't the great. Uh, wasn't great. We talked about nitrous oxide, commonly known as laughing gas and uh, all the harms of alcohol and then we talked a bit about easter eggs and pets so yeah i can confirm that monty the labrador who is sitting here under my desk as we're recording did not so far help himself to any of the children's easter eggs excellent that does imply there are still easter eggs remaining around your house strangely there is actually yes in fact my this is a, this is a classic isn't it 15 year old daughter said to me yesterday dad you know next easter yes um could would it be possible if i chose an item of clothing instead of an easter egg ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, growing up so fast i know i know anyway look if you like the podcast please click like uh, on your platform of choice because apparently that helps us um we have news today helen i see breaking news harry is coming to the coronation uh now what but not megan now why am i mentioning harry I can. I know exactly why. Has your brother-in-law given you a hard time? No, he doesn't know about it yet. But the, okay. the reason I'm saying this, uh, listeners, is because last time I had a dream about Harry and Meghan, who were, it was the dream where Harry and Meghan are somebody else you know, while being somebody else you know, while being Harry and Meghan. And that was, that someone else was my brother-in-law and his wife, who had this strange dream where we were sort of hanging out with Harry and Meghan, but it was brother-in-law and wife. Anyway, since I mentioned this, you would be amazed, Helen. People have said to me, I've had that dream too. Now, I I, now I don't know whether this is because Harry and Meghan are, you know, obviously very well-known public figures and they're everywhere, um, or certainly have been in recent months, but other people have had this dream too. So, you know, I'm just putting it out there that, you know, maybe I'm not so odd. I, I'm not commenting on whether you're odd or not, Steve. I do know that vivid dreams are really common. Uh, I get some extremely vivid ones, but I have to say royalty don't usually feature in mm. them. But, but you know, mm. I'm not sure I necessarily want to share my dreams with everybody. No, probably best. But you are a dame, so I would have thought royalty could, could feature in your dreams. I'm sort of punching above my station really aren't i in doing that anyway um <laughs> without further ado moving on uh, yes um wh where are we going to start this week sadly i think we've got to start again with industrial action by junior doctors because as we're recording this we are right in the middle of four days uh, of full walkout strike by junior doctors in england this does not affect the devolved nations currently um lots of people had been doing lots of things to try and get this averted but sadly the industrial action has gone ahead um it's the second block of industrial action that they've taken and there is huge effort going on by people to cover for them but people are spread very thin and clearly consultant colleagues in hospitals and gps in community are stepping up and, and covering all the work that our more junior colleagues do but i think it's so easy to forget the vital role that junior doctors play. I mean, the, 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 the name junior doctor is such a misnomer. I mean, they are mm, the absolute mm. backbone of service delivery throughout the NHS. Um, and they are in a pretty bad place in terms of how they're feeling at the moment. Um, but for everyone else who's covering for them, people have given up holidays to be there. 
I think it's pretty stressful. And we've heard some difficult news today about covering some of the hospitals. But I don't know what you're hearing. Well, um, actually, di directly from constituents as a, as a constituency MP. So, I mean, look, I think there's two truths here. One is that the pay slide that they're talking about is real. Even yes. if there's disagreement over to what extent, you know, and the the BMA are, are using one measure of inflation, which I think is the the CPI, not the RPI. And, um, you know, I think the ONS have sort of disputed the extent to which the, the pay slide is, has happened. But there's no question there's been a pay slide yeah. uh, since 2008, really, from the financial crash through to the, the inflation spike post-war, during war in Russia, Ukraine. So that, that's one truth. Second truth is that a 35% pay rise is unreasonable. You know, in the court of reasonableness, I don't think that one chimes. So I think the Secretary of State is dead right when, when he says that. I think, you know, and I was at Department of Health as Jeremy Hunt's PPS, Parliamentary Private Secretary, um, during the first junior doctor strike in 2016. I mean, actually, mm. we're very early on in this dispute, you know, and as such, I think both sides are sort of sparring, sort of sizing each other up, trying out their their lines. Um, and it was the same in the nurses dispute, wasn't it, with the Agenda for Change group, is that they, they you know, it, start, it was very, very confrontational and, um, and wordy at the start. The problem is, of course, in this early bit of the dispute where they're trading blows it's the patients isn't it it's my constituents the court in the middle you know i had an email yesterday from from my local trust and i suspect all mps are getting this from their local trust talking about the number of cancelled appointments and cancelled procedures that are happening as a result of this and you know they are clocking up they're yeah. clocking up into the tens of thousands and that of course is just going to make all of the pressures worse so uh, the other thing i'm hearing just finally is i was actually out in a constituency today local elections coming up i was talking to some constituents on some doorsteps and i chatted to a junior doctor who who said to me you know that something something's got to give you know he said i i appreciate 35 percent seems a lot but we've lost a lot and you know i I don't feel any um, any determination that means I have to stay in the NHS. You know, I'm getting all sorts of offers and enticements to go down under and it's attractive to me. And so I sort of I know we've got to find a, a resolution to this. Um, 35 percent, I don't think is it. But, you know, if we don't, can we afford not to? So loads of stuff in what you've picked up let me just throw back a couple of things at you steve so first of all there's a really good graph in the financial times today not that i read the financial times diligently i hasten to add uh, but a really good one comparing how salaries have risen or fallen from the sort of the median uh, for a range of professions and it does show very clearly that the, the doctors have actually dropped a lot i mean this includes the whole breadth and we know junior doctors have done worst out of doctors so going back to your first point doesn't matter what measure you use they've done badly and they have been the system has served them poorly over the last decade. Yeah. Um, but I, I think everybody agrees about the scale of the ask is somewhat eye-watering. I think this the scale of the ask would be so much more palatable if there was a narrative about it being over the next X number of years. You know, an instantaneous pay restoration of 35%, you, you're absolutely right. People just are shocked at that as a statistic. 
if there's a narrative about spreading it over a greater time, that could be a lot more palatable. So for me, it's about getting people together to talk. And what I'm not hearing at the moment is any sense of the parties coming to the table. And before you can start negotiations, you have to have a sort of preconditions. You have to set the scene, build some trust, at least be able to speak to each other and build a bit of respect between each other. And that's really lacking at the moment. So my plea is to get people talking. Um, I think it was your phrase, it's got to be jaw-jaw, not war-war. Mm. Yeah, and, and but I don't, I mean, I don't see much hope of that right now because I said about those early stages of the war that we that, w- that we seem to be in. I mean, the hope has to be the template of what happened with the nurses and the agenda for change, which is that, you know, preconditions were dropped. They sat down and did the jaw-jaw and guess what? They came up with an accommodation that, fingers crossed the unions will support well we'll know in a couple of days well we know in a couple of days yeah what we're gonna need here because i think there's a lot of afters there's a lot of hangover from 2016 here you know there's a lot of people who are very who are very sore still and i and i understand that and of course that health secretary then jeremy hunt is now chancellor so i understand Mm -hmm. that what we need is a leap of faith we need someone to take a leap of faith uh, on both sides in this dispute you know ACAS were involved last time the dispute resolution body were involved last time in solving the junior doctor strike and I think you know that's what we may need this time because you're right we, if if they sit down and talk about pay clearly they're not going to land on 35 percent, and I suspect the BMA know that full well but there are so many other issues as well aren't there as there were in the 2016 dispute you know because after the pandemic and the winter we've had this is the last thing that junior doctors need and the NHS needs so you know they've yeah. got to find a way to sit down and solve this so it's going to be a leap of faith it is because the the statistics are eye watering in terms of cancellations. You alluded to thousands and tens of thousands. There's actually hundreds of thousands of procedures that are yeah. going to be cancelled. They, they're estimating somewhere between two hundred and three hundred thousand appointments and procedures cancelled over these four day period because of the the double impact of the Easter weekend. And of course, that just adds to the backlog. Now, people will have these rescheduled, but for every person who's rescheduled, somebody else gets pushed further down the line. And we're hearing some pretty grim stories. So please, let's get people to the table and whoever, whatever it takes to get them there, whether it's ACAS, whether it's any other independent person to help them get talking. um, We all want that. Yeah. Okay. Um, So we're just going to talk about smoking uh, now. And um, obviously, I'm sure you in your surgery see all sorts of uh, implications of lifetime smokers and tried to encourage people not to but been quite a big announcement this week uh so when i was a public health minister back in 2019 i published the the second very big thing called the tobacco control plan which was to sort of get us to smoke free uh, by 2030 the government have this week so just yesterday actually published we're recording this on wednesday so yesterday on tuesday the 11th of, of april they've published a sort of update if you like to that and there's an awful lot in it it still has that ambition of being smoke free by 2030 uh we're going to be uh, almost one in five of all smokers in england will be provided with a vape starter kit uh to quit the habit as yeah so that's that's interesting so local councils be invited to take part in the scheme and then design things which suit their areas so obviously there are more challenges with pregnant women who smoke in one area of england than there are in others um there'll be much more support for women to smoke free pregnancy because of course that then hopefully reduces the number of babies born underway or underdeveloped with health problems requiring requiring then ongoing neonatal care and and the risk of miscarriage obviously goes up the government are going to consult on mandatory cigarette pack inserts so something that actually drops out of the pack when you open it with positive messages and information to help people 
to, to quit the habit. And there's going to be a big crackdown on illicit vape sales as part of the measures to stop children and non-smokers taking up the habit. Um, does this sound, before we introduce our guest, does this sound to you as a GP like a good thing? Absolutely. It sounds like a really important step forward. I mean, I'd argue there's loads more we could be doing and should be doing and should have been doing. But absolutely, I was delighted to see hear the headlines uh, a couple of days ago. And um, I just want to know when it's rolling out to my area in Litchfield, because there are so many people, I think, who could be helped by this. Yeah, I think NHS figures for 2021 showed that 9% of 11 to 15 year old children used e-cigarettes nine percent nine percent and that was up from six percent just three years earlier in 2018 so you know you 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 can see why there is a a need to act because smoking smoking prevalence in england in 2021 was 13 percent. now that's the lowest on record yeah um but you know it's still given that this smoking is still the biggest preventable killer in our country today it is still you know, something that we're talking about prevention being the new cure, boy, this is, uh, this should be low hanging fruit, but it's very hard, of course, without support to get, to get people to quit. I mean, vaping is a gateway to so many other, uh, addictive substances for young people. And we absolutely have to make this so much harder for young people to get addicted to vaping. It's, we are doing them such a disservice. We're setting them up for a lifetime of problems if we carry on at this rate. Okay, Helen, shall we delve a little deeper then into this? We've got a guest right. on the podcast, Deborah Arnott, who I think you know well, and I certainly know well, uh, CEO of ASH, which stands for Action on Smoking and Health. Deborah, welcome to the Prevention is the New Cure podcast. Hi, Deborah. I'm delighted to be here. Great to see you, Helen. And that's, you too. That's great to see you, Deborah. Now, listen, you have long campaigned on all of these issues. When I was public health minister, you know, you used to, to talk to me about the tobacco control plan that I published in 2019, and I'm sure you were involved in, in the one before that in 2017. This this plan announced yesterday by, by Neil O'Brien, uh, the public health minister at the moment. How does it measure up? Are you happy? Sad? Think there's more to do? Where are you on this? Well, I think, you know, he's the first public health minister since the Green Paper, which announced the Smoke Free 2030 ambition, who's got some concrete commitments out of the government. So that's good as far as it goes. But it's just not enough. Um, the annual investment being announced, we've totaled it up and it's only about a quarter of the amount that the independent review the government commissioned last year from Javid Khan recommended, which was 125 million. Um, and it's only for two years, no longer. So, you know... <laughs> As, as you say, prevention is the new new cure, but we need to fund it. And um, at the moment, I mean, just the 125 million, I was totaling it up. It's less than 0.01% of the government's budget. And yet the Treasury is unable to find new funds. So um, Neil said yesterday, this isn't um, this. This is in addition to the existing public health grant, but it is coming from the total DH grant. So that's all a bit frustrating because as you know, you know, smoking costs the NHS billions a year. It costs um, uh, social care billions a year because smokers on average need social care 10 years earlier. Um, and the cost to the economy as a whole is far greater than that. It's about 21 billion a year, nearly double the, te- the 11 billion the government gets in tobacco taxes. So um, you'll know what I'm going to say next because it's something you've called for too. We need a polluter pays levy. We need to make the tobacco manufacturers pay for the damage they do. The pharmaceutical industry 
um, has its profits um, capped so that um, uh, money goes from drugs to the NHS every year, billions. Uh, all we're asking for is capping the tobacco industry whose products kill um, uh, smokers uh, so that we can raise around 700 million to pay for tobacco control and also, also for other public health measures to improve our population health. We need more funding to, for prevention and the government is clearly not able to find it from its coffers. Deborah, I really hear what you're saying. And I mean, like you, I felt this is fantastic, but I think there's so much more to be done. And I see it in general practice on a daily basis. I mean, the bits that, that stood out for me as being uh, particularly welcome were the commitments about the evidence um, around vaping. I'm really concerned about the number of young people who take up vaping to sort of brand new. Um, and then it's a gateway to addictive substances later. I don't know if Ash has any particular views about that, but it's something that really troubles me and my, my patient population. Yes, and it troubles us too. And that's why we were really pleased that um, O'Brien made two statements, you know, one on vaping is that we're going to crack down on on underage vaping, which is a scourge. And we're go we've got a call for evidence on what more needs to be done to make products less appealing, less attractive, mm. less affordable for young people. Yeah. I mean, you can buy them on every street corner. They look like sweets. They're named after sweets. They've they got smell. cartoon characters, bright colours, um, and they can be bought for, you know, the disposable single use vapes, which kids mainly buy, can be bought for under a five that's got to be addressed so they're they're immediately announcing enforcement um and they're saying they want to call for evidence well we've already submitted the evidence of what we want to see happen um and we think government needs to get on and take action but at the same time as you know these products uh, a good cochrane review which is the gold standard mm. for um assessment of randomized controlled trials and evidence on um uh you know on treatments uh, shows that they are the most successful quitting aid and yeah. they're nearly twice as effective as the old nicotine patches and gums which you'll be remember from all your years of prescribing so we definitely need um to be encouraging smokers to use vapes but at the same time we also need to 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 spend money on other things that at population level make a difference so the mass media campaigns um, which used to show those horrible pictures of mm. people's arteries full of fat and, um, you know, don't be the one about one in two smokers dying prematurely. Mm. Uh, every breath about COPD, which is such a horrible way to die. Um, those The funding for those, you know, has All been gone. cut by 90%. You know, we're not seeing any ads on TV. And for the, the, the sort of target population, the most deprived smokers, they still watch TV. They still watch the ads. Um, we know that these ads are effective. Uh, but they're just not being funded. So, you know, so just Deborah, so that, um, you know, that, that call the illicit vapes enforcement squad, which I think that sounds great. I'd love to see that on the back of a jacket. Um, it is about stopping the sales of them to, to under 18s. You said about a call for evidence to sort of, to identify opportunities to stop children vaping. Do you think that's going to look at the thing you talked about, you know, them named after sweets and they smell, I mean, let, let, can I just make yes. a confession here? Helen will know I make confessions on this. He does this a lot. Um, <laughs> but when I'm, when I'm, them. when I'm walking down, the street and i smell uh, a vape it actually smells quite nice oh no because whenever I, because i've got a sweet tooth you see so oh. i smelt one the other day that smelled like a wambar and i thought it, 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 but that that's the problem isn't it is yeah. that they smell nice and then they seem to be all very friendly and cuddly and just like a wambar which is bad for your teeth but probably not a lot else bad um do you think that call for evidence is going to look at those 
those sweet smelling vapes, Deborah. It, it it is, but my concern is more about the naming than the actual um uh than the the flavors because the flavors are important. Nicotine is very aversive, and the flavors mm. help with vaping. But if you remember, I mean, when we go back to the peak smoking years, when nearly eighty percent of men smoked, and slightly mm. later on, fifty percent of women. They weren't smoke. They weren't smoking um, sweet smelling um, cigarettes. They were smoking tobacco flavor or menthol. Yeah. So I mm. I don't think flavors are in and of themselves are necessarily disastrous. But I think the marketing and promotion and availability and and cheapness those are the things that really make a difference. And we know that most of the the children who are trying vaping at the moment are just experimenting, um, and um, they tell us they they're just doing it to give it a try. And we're not seeing large numbers of young people who haven't smoked taking up vaping but that doesn't mean we shouldn't take action because we've seen a growth over the last two years and it's mainly been in use of single-use disposable vapes which are the cheapest products uh, which is why i'm concerned about affordability and we called on the the treasury to put a, a tax on single-use disposable vapes to make them more expensive mm. um, and discourage their use amongst adults as well as children because these are being dropped all over the place. Uh, they're yeah. environmentally really damaging and we should do something about it. Steve, it sounds like we've got a whole heap of things that are doing bad There's a lot of work to, to do, isn't there, here? Yeah. I, can see, I, I suspect that um, Bob Blackman, he's very good on this, um, and the number of MPs in the House who, who are really interested in this, including me, I suspect we'll, there'll be a, a backbench debate on the subject to scrutinise this new plan. But, you know, just when we've got, what, smoking prevalence in England, I was saying to Helen earlier, is about, in 2021 was 13%. I don't know whether you've got an update on that, Deborah, but I mean, that's the lowest on record. So, you know, doubling duty on cigarettes and some of the stop smoking services that, that have happened. I mean, I appreciate what you say that they're not enough and I, I would agree, but I mean, that we've got the lowest level of smoking in England on record. That's surely something to be celebrated, but we're nowhere near that smoke-free ambition that I, that I, that I wrote as the minister and that Neil has, Neil O'Brien has restated yesterday are we no we're not and um since 2021 ucl does a more regular survey of smoking behavior and their survey shows that smoking rates since 2021 have pretty much flatlined they haven't been going down anymore mm. so we're even further off reaching the smoke-free 2030 which you want to see and that's why we're looking forward to your prevention inquiry which i know will be looking at this in great detail and we think it's really important because the point you make about cross-party support. I mean, it was the Health Select Committee uh, that ensured we have pro we had a proper ban on smoking in public places, oh. which included pubs and restaurants and clubs. Um, the, the, the Health Select Committee, you know, smoking is not, not an issue where there's a lot of disagreement amongst the parties. It's just that governments need to have the ambition and enthusiasm to actually realize that the public's in advance of them. We do a survey of over 10,000 people every year and what it shows is the public want government to do more. They see a role for government in mm. prevention. They really do, particularly on smoking, and they want to see a levy. You know, three quarters of people support a levy. Three quarters of people support your yeah. smoke-free ambition. You know, yeah, no, the, I mean, the... I I'm with you. I, I take the view, you know, and I always did in government, that I think if you are in a publicly funded health service, as we are, then you not only have a right but i think you have a responsibility to to intervene in public health in a more muscular way and um you know because ultimately when when the these these health implications present it's the public health service that has to 
to, to bear the cost of it. And no one's saying that it shouldn't bear that cost. Of course, it has to do that because it's there to, to to look after people. But yeah, I'm glad you mentioned prevention inquiry. So the select committee is obviously kicked that off, and um, we're going to be talking different work streams. So there are ten work streams within it, uh, and one of them is alcohol, drugs, gambling, and smoking. So those those big four addictions, if you like, and uh, we will be producing work streams within the wider umbrella of prevention, if you like, and uh, looking at what more, what, what government have announced and how effective we think it is. And I know we'll be hearing from you, Deborah, uh, and we'll be looking at what more we think government needs to do to, to get us into a better place on this. Steve, can I just yeah. ask with the inquiry, will you be looking at the sort of return on investment for, for investing more in these services for all, for all those addictions you mentioned? Because it always strikes me as low-hanging fruit in terms of bang for buck, um, along with sexual health services and so on. They, they're often Cinderella parts of, of our health and public, you know, our public health and, and NHS service. But as a frontline clinician, that seems a no-brainer. Yeah, 100%. I'm very keen on the economics of prevention, which is what you're talking about, which yeah. is, you know, the money spent up front in smoking cessation services is absolutely nothing compared to what you spend on treating somebody who presents with, you know, COPD or lung cancer, um, God forbid. So yeah, 100%. We, we, we definitely are interested in hearing from people. And if anyone's listening to this podcast who can input on the economics of prevention, then we're really, really open to that. Excellent. Deborah, thank you so much yeah. for joining us. Um, it's great. Ash, Ash, doing good work. And we're really grateful for you being uh, our second uh, guest on the podcast. Uh, please spread the word. And um, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Deborah. Lovely to see you again. Welcome back. Okay, it was great, wasn't it, to have Deborah on talking about smoking? She really knows her stuff on that. She's, She's great. Valued. Anyway, I'm just going to press this button. That can only mean one thing. Pod surgery is now open. And uh, one of the things that we heard from this week from one of our one people listens is um, Hep C Trust. Um, obviously, Hepatitis C is very important charity. And uh, there's been quite a bit in the news this week about infected blood. Now, for those who don't know, um, it's been described as sort of the biggest scandal in AHS history. So we're talking about the infection of up to 30,000 people with contaminated Whoa. blood products biggest treatment disaster in NHS history. Thousands of people have subsequently died. A public inquiry has been taking evidence since Theresa May set it up in 2019 from people mm -hmm. affected by the scandal, and it keeps producing various interim reports. Ba basically, what happened was... Um, as I understand it, the, the UK was struggling at the time to keep up with demand for, for factor eight blood clotting yes. treatments. So supplies were then imported from the US and those supplies had been collected from, among other people, um, prisoners. And so people with haemophilia and other bleeding disorders here were given blood infected with HIV and hepatitis viruses during the 70s and the 80s and obviously as I said sadly you know num a number of them have part about 3,000 people um, have, have passed away and I, I have constituents that have been in touch with me about this um, you will I'm sure Helen have met patients who've been affected by this it, it was uh, just a terrible terrible thing wasn't it 
it was truly awful because, of course, it was done in complete innocence. I mean, the healthcare professionals involved didn't know these bloodborne viruses even existed at the time. And then when people started getting sick, there was complete bewilderment as to what was going on for a while. Of course, as we know, HIV only came to prominence. I think it was about 1980. It was identified as an illness. And it was about 1982 before we really started to understand what we were dealing with. So, yeah, there are terrible long term consequences of something that was done with the best of intentions. And of course, there are people from back then who were involved in accidents or had blood transfusions after traumatic birth. So obviously the biggest single group are those with the bleeding disorders, people with haemophilia, for example. But there are a big cluster of others that I've bumped into along the way. And yeah, we're living with this. I mean, what worries me actually, Steve, is there are a huge chunk of people out there who don't know that they may still be, be living with hepatitis and have done for decades and it may suddenly cause serious problems. So I think there is something here if you you know if you, if you know that you had a blood transfusion in the 70s and, or 80s and you've never been tested for hepatitis, it's definitely worth getting checked because it's a very simple blood test request. Yeah. Well, the reason we're talking about this today on the pod is that the, the Infected Blood Inquiry has said it was publishing interim reports and it published an interim report just a couple, last week actually, on the 5th of April. Okay. Um, so Sir Brian Langstaff, who is chairing the inquiry, the recommendations of interim report, I, I think, primarily is that he wants to see the immediate implementation of a full compensation scheme for those affected by Good. infected blood. And the reason why that matters now is because, you know, very, very sadly, people we're losing people. And yeah. so, you know, we need to get that scheme up and running before the inquiry makes its final report. And he, he asked for interim compensation payment of £100,000 to be extended to bereaved parents, to children, siblings, obviously, unless a claim has already been made against the estate. Um, so yeah, if you if you actually anyone interested in this, uh, Google's infected blood inquiry, you will see is a very good website that full of all the work that they are doing. Um, you know, it's an independent statutory public inquiry. And uh, you can see all of the information on there, you can see all of the evidence that people have given, there's ways to get confidential support and, and listen to the to the public hearings. And uh, we we really do need to press I think it's Jonathan Quinn is the Minister of the, of the Cabinet Office, he's the yeah, Paymaster Quinn. General. Yeah, he's a good man, actually. And, um, you know, there is Diana Johnson, who chairs the Home Affairs Select Committee, but also leads the all party group on this subject, is always raising this in Parliament and credit yeah. to Diana and um you know she she gets us other select committee chairs to to weigh in behind her and i'm i'm very happy to do so but yeah. um but you know no, as a I'm, clinician helen uh what what, what can it, you say to people on this when they come in i mean first of all i could just say on the compensation bit you know i'm not a politician i'm a doctor and um, from the patient's point of view this is a no-brainer to pay out the compensation and fast it's, there's no there's no question what happened it, it, it's very easy to prove what happened and how people got infected Let's get some money out to them now while they can still use it in a meaningful way. And in terms of what you say to people, I've met people who are incredibly um, dignified about it all, actually, who have accepted that their lives were saved by blood and blood products back then. And it was not done with malice or, or mal, you know, or any sort of bad intent. It was done with the knowledge that was best known at the time, but it it shows our fallibility as healthcare professionals, indeed all of us in society, that, you know, what is today's fact and, and knowledge may be tomorrow's old news and, and proven to be not the same truth that we thought it was. And certainly in medicine and science, things are evolving all the time. I think all of us need to be humble enough to accept when 
things have gone wrong in the past, to apologise for past mistakes and to do our best to rectify them. And I think this is what the Infected Blood Inquiry is trying to do, and I commend them for the work they've done. But as is the challenge with all these inquiries, they're always slow because they have to be a necessity. But there is something that can be done here and now to help people who are suffering. And I think I really think this one is the one where I would urge people to step up and make the payments. Yeah. So if you want more information on it, as I said, please Google uh, Infected Blood uh, Inquiry. You can also look up the Hep C Trust, who've got a huge amount of information on there and support on there. And you can find out a little bit more about them. I, I actually visited a, um, there's another charity called Hep C U Later, which I think is a brilliant title for yeah. a charity, who were, who were in Winchester in my constituency a couple of weeks ago doing uh, Hep C testing through a uh, a mobile a mobile unit uh, that was at something called Trinity Winchester, which is a brilliant local charity and uh, just trying to raise the awareness of Hep C and as you say help people who don't know they got it uh, yeah. and that and it's so so important to to spot that for people anyway um so yeah really really important subject i'm really glad that glad that we touched on it just 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 one other thing before we close helen um so i know i, I know i mentioned before my my father passed away from from pancreatic cancer but he yeah. actually had parkinson's and um you know yeah he did and you know it was really it was really difficult for him you know he's a very active person played golf and still and still did play play golf and it's quite interesting actually i've seen uh with golf and sport i remember when i was the minister mm. how people with parkinson's and quite a severe tremor and mm. shake would hold a golf club and not do so. Absolutely. No, I think that's absolutely fascinating. There's got to be something to that. But the reason I, I raised Parkinson's is that there's something in the news today that a new device that's being trialed mm. at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge that could, it says it could potentially improve the mobility of people with Parkinson's disease being trialed on inpatients at a Cambridge hospital, something called the C. UE1, they need to work on that title, worn on the sternum of the chest, delivers vibration and pulses intended to improve motor skills and alleviate stiffness. It's hoped the device being tried at Adam Brooks will also reduce falls. And gosh, I remember my father, uh, you know, having falls and trips, mm. you know, that then just, just really hit their confidence and really yeah. hit their dignity and uh, obviously can, can injure them as well. But, you know, just a, just a word from you, from a clinician's point of view, you must see, you must see patients with parks. It's a, so I've got a dear, dear family friend, somebody I've known since I was a kiddie who has got very advanced aggressive Parkinson's at the moment. And she's been involved in lots of research trials over the years. She's had implanted devices in her brain, which have helped for long periods of time. And there are drugs out there which are helping. But Parkinson's is a really destructive condition. If there's anything that can help people, I'm certainly up for it being tried, but I do want to see things done in proper research trials. And so what's good about this device, this is a device that people are already purchasing and having a go with, And but what we haven't got is good research evidence about it. So it's great to see Adam Brooks, a fantastic uh, academic institution, doing a proper trial to see if this is really helpful or if it's just works for some, doesn't work for others. And um, for me, Parkinson's is one of a huge range of disorders that our neurology colleagues are looking after. And we have a serious shortage of neurologists out there, massive waiting lists. And I mean, to be honest with you, Parkinson's is one of those conditions that as a GP, I frequently have to say to patients when I examine them, actually, I think it's quite likely you've got Parkinson's. I'm not supposed to make the diagnosis, but I can certainly prepare the ground because mm -hmm. it's going to take them six, eight, possibly 12 months to see a neurologist and get a diagnosis. It's kinder to get the ball rolling. But the other condition, of course, we see far more frequently in which we can do something about, given that we're supposed to be talking about prevention, is Alzheimer's disease and dementias. And a you know, neurological condition, but we, uh, whereas with Parkinson's, we don't know why people get Parkinson's disease. With Alzheimer's type dementia particularly, there are several things that people can do to reduce their chances of it. Whilst 
huge amounts of dementia disorder just happens with age and time. There are things that you can do to look after yourself, um, which will reduce your chances in time because it's a cardiovascular linked disease. So, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about already, stopping smoking, keeping your alcohol cut down, healthy diet, regular exercise, all that stuff can really help reduce the chance of dementia. I see. Yeah. So Parks is, you know, very much a management condition at the moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember my father saying, you know, that an hour or two out on taking his Parks drugs could have a major impact on yeah. how he would be for the next 24, 48 hours or more. But just to end on a positive on this, as I spotted this in the news today, as um, obviously the US president is here, um, and there was a, there's a, Democrat uh, congresswoman in Virginia, Jennifer Wexton. She's only 54 and she's mm -hmm. got Parkinson's. And oh, uh, she said that she's going to carry on serving you for many years to come. Good. And, uh, you know, so it's just it's worth saying, isn't it? Uh, yes. You know, obviously in a very advanced stages, Parkinson's can can really, really debilitate quality of life um, and worse, sadly. But, you know, many people live and, uh, and work with Parkinson's and manage that condition Absolutely. well through increasingly good drugs and maybe this this new um device at, at adam brooks so you know there is there is great treatments out there for for people suffering with parks absolutely bring it on and i'm delighted by her attitude i mean she's absolutely right this is a condition that many people live with for decades um and we just need to do everything we can to support them to live the most yeah, fulfilling yeah. lives good for her okay well look, we covered a lot of ground today haven't we um As just, just just a bit of an advert for future pods so you know we we on the select committee are obviously looking at our this big prevention inquiry. I talked about smoking, drugs, alcohol, and gambling with Deborah earlier. It's one of the work streams that the select committee is going to be doing. But there are there are quite a lot of others, and uh, you know, so it goes from healthy places to you know where we live and work and how Good. that impacts on our health on vaccination, uh, which we're going to be talking about next week actually in the select committee. Um, health inequalities, mental health and well being, which will include stuff about sleep, uh, healthy eating and obesity, uh, sexual health. Um, early years and childhood and cancer prevention and then some of the other big major conditions so if any of those things float your boat and you listen to this podcast and you want to chuck a question into the pod surgery or you want to suggest a, a topic within those work streams that you'd like us to discuss on the podcast then please find us on social media and message us that way or you can email podcast at stevebrine.com and uh, and we'd love to hear from you been great chatting again Steve. it's been Take great care. chatting okay yep god bless thanks till next Bye. time goodbye